Welcome to the Special Needs Kids Are People Too podcast with Amy Bodkin, EDS. Amy is an autistic adult who also happens to be a school psychologist turned special needs consultant and public speaker. She's also a homeschooling mom to two autistic kiddos, a yoga instructor, a card-carrying Trekkie, and an all-around fun person. And last but not least, Amy is an advocate for seeing every child as a person, not a diagnosis. Because a special needs kid is just like any other child, just more so. Here's Amy Bodkin. Hi, I'm Amy Bodkin, coming to you from the blanket fort in my office, and welcome to Special Needs Kids Are People Too. Today, I wanted to share with you about my favorite educational philosopher, Charlotte Mason. Charlotte Mason was not an educational philosopher that I learned about in graduate school. She was one that I learned about later from the homeschool community. And she is my absolute favorite by far. She was born in the late 1800s, early 1900s in England. And she was influenced by some of the educational philosophers that came before her, including, for my American listeners, Bronson Alcott, Louisa May Alcott's father. Uh, Louisa May Alcott, the authoress of Little Women, one of my favorite authors from when I was a kid. Charlotte Mason had the idea, well, she had 20 principles, but her primary principle, the foundational idea of everything that she did from that point forward, was the idea that children are born persons. Now, that sounds like a pretty basic idea, but have you considered for a moment that I have not yet found another educational philosophy that starts with that idea. And shouldn't that be the place that we all start? It's especially relevant for children with special needs or any kind of unusual circumstance. That's what I mean when I say special needs. I mean, you've got a need that falls outside the average, whether that's caused by trauma, physiological health challenges, physical handicap, learning differences, developmental differences. There are so many possibilities. So all of those lumped together to just say, you have a need that falls outside of the average. And that's so important because how many times do we try to otherize people because they aren't like us? And I think it has to be something that we do rather intentionally. What's really interesting is considering Charlotte Mason's ideas and the time period that she developed those ideas in. There were definitely people who came before her and she definitely had contemporaries at the same time with some similar concepts. Uh, They were writing in the time period of romanticism and transcendentalism. And so they definitely had more of an emphasis on the person and uh, as an individual, what makes them unique, not just being cogs in a machine or programmed like a robot. However, the backdrop of what was going on in the world at the time that most of her work was done in was World War I. And she said in her writings that she hoped that we would learn from it and would never experience anything like that again. Of course, we know now that we did. But what was really interesting was what she wrote about World War I and how it related to education. She said that from her perspective, 
Germany had taken some of the educational philosophies that had come out of England and had stripped the morality out of it, basically. Basically stripped it down to what do you need to do to be a model citizen? You know, what do we need to do to develop your body? What do we need to do to develop your brain? Not really necessarily concerning ourselves with engaging the soul or spirit. Obviously, this proved to be a problem down the road. Her thinking was, was that people are individuals and you cannot program them as a robot and expect them to remain uh, or to retain their humanity. And I think that we definitely see that. Where do we get our ideas about who has value? Does someone have value because they are physically able to do things that a typical person can? Does someone have value only because they are able to do things with their brain like a typical person can? Or does the value of who a person is go deeper than that? Charlotte Mason thought so. I think so too, for that matter. But at the time, during World War I, Germany showed a lack of regard for the individuality of different countries. They're not doing it well enough. We will roll in, take them over, no problem. We see this idea expand more later on during World War II. These people don't have value. We're going to get rid of them and replace them with people who do have value, who we define as having value. This is why during World War II, we see people with disabilities targeted. They did not have the prenatal testing that we do today, but anybody with a disability could be terminated or sent to a camp where they would eventually be terminated. And I think that this emphasis on making the best citizen that we can, developing a person's body and brain and uh, to a level that we consider to be ideal, trying to program, if you will, the model citizen, this emphasis on numbers and statistics and trying to measure up or match up, I think this is problematic. And it's something that we see happening today too. In times of great scientific advancement, like they were seeing around the time of World War I, and not unlike today too, we are extremely tempted to get caught up in our own genius. We are tempted to think about how smart we are compared to previous generations and how we can now use all these tools and measure everything and get everything just right. But the truth of the matter is that there remains something that we can't quite put into numbers or wrap our fingers around. There is an episode of Star Trek. I know, there's always an episode of Star Trek. Uh, Measure of a Man, it's a viewer favorite from Next Generation. In this episode, Commander Maddox tries to get Data to undergo a refit to where he can take him apart, figure out how he works, and potentially create a lot more Datas. And Data is concerned about this for his own well-being, much less also the potential ramifications it could have socially. But he's concerned that if he does go offline and his memories are downloaded into a computer, that the ineffable quality of the memory may be lost. And I think that there's a valid point there. There's a certain uh, sense of humanity that seems to be lost when we try to 
replace all of the parts. Uh, there's another Star Trek episode, actually, Deep Space Nine, where a man has been exposed to too much radiation, uh, Vedic Boreal, and he needs different body parts replaced so that he can survive long enough to get through some talks between Bajor and Cardassia. And they replace all of his brain with robotic parts. And he's just never quite the same again. When we choose to focus on just developing our physical bodies and just developing our brains, I think we lose a sense of our humanity. We become so focused on the numbers, on what we can achieve, that we forget to appreciate the beauty that's around us, the beauty of difference. And beauty is a very important part of our lives. Charlotte Mason focused a lot on making sure to include beauty in your homeschool or in your school in general. Poetry, art, music, and not necessarily from a more professional perspective. It was to appreciate it from the perspective of somebody who is appreciating others' artistic expressions. Um, and also as a participant, but not necessarily a professional participant, as a form of self-expression. Are you homeschooling a student or want to be homeschooling a student who learns a little different from the average student? I'd highly recommend checking out a Charlotte Mason Plenary. A Charlotte Mason Plenary is a homeschool company focused on the philosophy of Charlotte Mason. Charlotte Mason was an educational philosopher in the late 1800s, early 1900s, who recognized the importance of not just educating a child body and mind, but also educating them as a whole person with a diet rich in the humanities, the studies of what makes us better human beings. It is not enough to know everything. You also have to know how to use that knowledge in a way that contributes positively to the world. A Charlotte Mason Plenary has all sorts of resources for helping you do Charlotte Mason your way. We also have form guides over there that allow you to plan a customized curriculum in three easy steps. And I even partnered with a Charlotte Mason Plenary to create a developmental form guide that goes with these guides that explains to you where to place your child and how to make all sorts of adaptations for different types of learners. Go check it out at cmplenary.com. One of the things that she wrote was that every day a child needs something to love, something to do, and something to think about. At times when my health has been at its worst, I have found that looking for something to love, something to do, and something to think about has helped me find contentment. The truth of the matter is, is that our bodies need something to do, our brains need something to think about, and our souls need something to love. And it is only through the combination of these three that we feel fully complete. What would the world be like without art and music and poetry and so many of the other arts? They are just as important as our sciences and physical fitness as well. Charlotte Mason wrote 20 different principles. It starts with children are born persons, but she continues on to talk about how we only have three educational instruments available to us. 
And those three things that we have available to us are that education is an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life. What she means is by education is an atmosphere is that too often when we work with children, we try to get them to do things that we want them to do, either by appealing to their sense of fear or love, suggestion, influence, or by undue play on a natural desire, basically bribing them. What Charlotte Mason is saying is that we really shouldn't be manipulating children. Rather, we need to use their atmosphere, and atmosphere can be very powerful. You have a great deal of control over the environment that your children are in, and that environment will have a more powerful effect than any lesson you teach, because it's what they're swimming in, basically. Education is a discipline. Now, I really don't like the word discipline. I just, it's not my favorite word. It does not feel very fun to me. (laughs) But what it means is that it needs to be mindful. So looking at what we're doing, being mindful of what we're doing, what's working, what's not working, where are roadblocks, where should we problem solve? And recognizing that the habits that we set up mindfully are going to keep us from having to work so hard. And then the last one, education, is a life. She means that we continue learning throughout life. We shouldn't graduate at 18. The number of books people read in a year after graduating high school is rather disturbing. Education should be something that we love and enjoy so much that it's something that continues for the rest of our lives. Because let's be honest, if we're not growing, we're dying. So you're probably not getting physically bigger once you've reached adulthood. So we need to be growing in other ways. Maybe you're growing and developing more muscle, or maybe you are reading more books and growing your mind. Maybe you're struggling with ideas that lead you to create moral questions in your mind to help you grow spiritually. Or maybe you are developing a meditation practice or a prayer practice, Um, whatever that is. But it should continue because if we're not growing, we're dying. And so those are the three that she says we have the opportunity to use without manipulating children. And I'm a big fan of not manipulating children. Turns out manipulation isn't very healthy. So with that said, a syllabus for a child, she says, it should require much knowledge. It should be various. And it should be communicated using well-chosen language because ideas are conveyed through language. So in her mind, lots of living books for sure. And you should be telling it back after a single reading because what you have gained from that and what you're able to tell back tells us what you connected with, what was important to you. It's not what's the right answer, what's the correct summary. It's what can you tell us about what you got out of that? What did you learn from it? Perhaps your child will get something completely different out of it than what you got. And you may even learn something from them. Um, She insists upon a single reading because that encourages the children to learn to pay attention. And of course, you know, there are some limitations here because like if a child does not have language, then they are not ready for that. And those things that she talks about are really, when she's talking about that, she's talking about kids whose language has developed to the point 
that they are really ready to learn to read. If they are not ready to learn to read, then they need honestly more time to play because they've got a lot of development still left to do that is served best by play. Once we start to really develop those language skills to the point we're ready to read, that's when we can start exchanging ideas. And we still have to be somewhat cautious because ideas can scare kids sometimes, especially if it's an idea they're not ready for and their brain doesn't protect them. A lot of times kids' brains will protect them from ideas they're not ready for yet, but a lot of times kids with developmental differences, um, kids who've been through trauma, all those possible kinds of differences, sometimes their brains don't protect them from what they're not ready for. And then in her last several principles, she talks about how we must have two guides to moral and intellectual self-management. And she calls these the way of the will and the way of the reason. The way of the will is helping kids learn to develop a strength of will. A lot of times we'll say a child is a strong-willed child, but that's not actually strong-willed. Usually when we talk about a strong-willed child, we're talking about a child who is throwing a fit because they're overwhelmed and upset. Or, you know, they've got an idea in their head that it needs to be this way and the other way sounds scary. So that's not really so much strong-willed. It's more where they are at developmentally at that point or not feeling like they're being listened to, whatnot. So the way of the will is helping kids learn to keep working at something, to keep trying things, to try things again when at first you don't succeed. Uh, Learning to take a break when you're tired and come back to it when you're fresh. Those kinds of skills that we learn over the course of life, um, helping kids learn to develop those. The way of reason is this idea that we can use our reasoning to help us with like a mathematical truth or maybe an initial idea, but it is not an infallible guide. Our reason can reason almost anything. And that's the problem with leaning too hard to science, technology, our own genius, basically, because we are fallible. Science only answers the questions you ask. If you don't ask the right questions, you will not get the right answers. If you don't ask all of the right questions, you won't have all of the facts. We are limited by the questions that we ask. And so recognizing that reason can be a fallible guide is really important. And so therefore, we must help children learn to use both of those tools in a way that will help them make choices and support things that will lead to not only just like good behavior, but moral choices, things that won't steal from other people. Think about World War II as just a really big, obvious example. One of the things that we could have learned, and quite honestly, that blame falls on the United States as well, for sure, probably other countries as well. I'll speak to my own. We knew what was going to happen before it happened, and we chose to do nothing. So that's, that's on us as well. It's not just Germany. All of us had choices to make, and as a worldwide community, we really failed. We allowed millions of people to be killed or harmed. And it was because we allowed reason to be our guide. Eugenics was huge at that time. In fact, 
in the United States, we also sterilized people because of their IQ score, because we believed that we could measure the intelligence and value of a person. Turns out, intelligence tests don't tell you how smart a person is. They tell you some about how a person's brain processes information, but they do not tell you how smart they are. And it is not always consistent over the lifespan. IQ scores can change. So we have made some very big mistakes by leaning too heavily on our reason. And it's one of the many reasons I really like Charlotte Mason. Her last principle, Principle 20, says, we allow no separation to grow up between the spiritual, intellectual and spiritual life of children, but teach them that the divine spirit has constant access to their spirits and is their continual helper in all the interests, duties, and joys of life. People have many different views about religion, spirituality. We'll be doing an episode in the near future on that as well, actually, uh, from an autistic perspective. But I think that it is extremely important that she points this out because we never want to think that we ourselves are at the top of the totem pole of society. The moment we do that, we become incredibly arrogant. And when we become arrogant and believe that we are basically the gods of the universe, we set ourselves up for disaster. That's what happened during World War I and World War II. And it's happened many, many, many times before. Usually when we allow our reason to guide us and we come to believe that we are as great and as powerful as God, like this people in the story of old from the Tower of Babel, we believe that we can climb as high to reach God or even surpass him. A sense of humility is extremely important especially for anyone who works in the sciences. The moment that we believe that we have all the answers on any particular topic in science is a moment that we're asking for a humbling. We are constantly learning new things and constantly realizing that we don't know nearly as much as we think we do. And that is why the study of the humanities is so important. That is why what Charlotte Mason spoke about education being the study of humanities is so important. It is learning to be better humans. And I think we could all use some of that. Thanks for joining me, and I will see you next time. We hope you had fun listening to today's episode and gained some new insights into the wonderful variety of people in our world. You can find out more about Amy's advocacy work at amybodkin.com. And remember, special needs kids are people too.